Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. To begin with today, a promotion for our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. It's a unique program available now, even in the days of COVID-19. Experts, scholars, historians, writers, humorous storytellers, and the list goes on and on, are all available from the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. As the Kentucky Humanities website spells out very clearly, from unique Kentucky cuisine, bourbon, and music, to politics, Kentucky culture, and African-American history, our Speakers Bureau features a fantastic group of the Commonwealth's finest scholars, historians, writers, and poets. Details on having one of the members of the Speakers Bureau visit with your organization are on our website. Uh, Each August, we announce the names of a number of new members of the Speakers Bureau, and our guest today is one of those. She's making a return visit to the Speakers Bureau, and she is Dr. Kathy Bullock, Professor Emeritus from Berea College. She was a member of the Speakers Bureau some years ago. She got busy with life and teaching and other things and dropped out of the Speakers Bureau for just a few years, and now she's back, and we're so glad of it. Uh, We're so glad to welcome her to the Speakers Bureau and to this podcast. Uh, Dr. Bullock, uh, welcome. Thank you, Bill. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to meet you and all of our listeners. Glad to be back with the Speakers Bureau. It it was just such a wonderful experience to share uh, with so many different members of our community and to learn so much as well. Well, we're so glad to reintroduce you to some people who probably remember you from before and and then new people who have come into the state or or maybe an organization and are looking for somebody. As a matter of uh, further introduction, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your your scholarship, about uh, how you ended up in Berea? Um, I don't even know if you're a Kentucky native or not. No, I'm not, Bill. I was born and bred in Washington, D.C., so I'm a real Washingtonian. Uh, And I got to Berea College, where I've been uh, teaching for the past 29 years. And once I got here, it was supposed to be for two years, Bill, and it ended up being 29. Uh, Just a fabulous and fabulous experience. So I'm here with my, my husband, who also works at Berea College, and uh, one son who's an opera singer. And normally he'd be in New York, but because of COVID, he, we get to have him here hang out with us for a little while. And so my work, uh, my area is music. And so I've taught uh, music theory. That's where my doctorate in formal training has been in. But also having grown up and performed in the gospel and African-American tradition all of my life, I also have brought that informal training uh, to, to my work such that I directed the gospel choir for many years there, as well as teaching theory and um, African-American history and world world history and various and sundry things that you do when you're at a small college or in a wonderful place like Berea College. Shout out to Berea. So just about, say, three weeks ago or so, I officially 
um, retired, but retiring for me means just shifting because I've been doing a lot of workshops on African-American sacred music um, here in the United States and parts of Europe and in West Africa. And I've wanted to continue doing more of that. And so I've, I'm so delighted to be able to share some of the presentations again with the Kentucky Humanities Council, as well as some new ones. Well, we are so glad to have you. Washington, D.C. is um, one of my favorite cities, maybe maybe my favorite city in the United States, maybe, maybe even beyond that. I just love visiting. Of course, it's been um, uh, rather difficult now. We had a trip planned uh, in the spring with our granddaughter. Uh, we were going to uh, introduce her to Washington for the first time, and of course, that was uh, postponed, but we'll, we will make a return visit. What was it like growing up there? Were you as conscious of Washington being the seat uh, of government as you were, it was a place where you had a home? Bill, in some ways, absolutely, because there is a large, there has been a large number of African-Americans who migrated from the Carolinas and Virginia into the Washington, D.C. area. So there was a strong, strong and rich African-American community, I would say 70 plus percent that lived in the actual city. Now, if you lived in D.C., there are many in the surrounding areas of uh, Virginia and Maryland that would come into the city to work. So it might be as many as 10 million in the daytime and 1 million at night. But living there, it was really rich. There were African-American people doing everything. And that was primarily my community. My dad was really active in the civil rights movement. I thought everybody did that. Was doing the, mm -hmm. the you know, with the March on Washington, he was a uh, he was one of the marshals, the Poor People's Campaign. Our church was one of the headquarters and the church, Black church being a headquarters. So you saw people of all different classes and communities knocking on our front door. Could be somebody from the mayor's office that my dad worked closely with. It could be somebody who was homeless, who was walking past. It could be the Vietnamese family that lived down the street. It could be uh, somebody else, some seniors who were passing in some friends of my sister who were in France who were coming by to pa pass by to say hello. So it was it was very rich. How did you uh, how did you find Berea or how did Berea find you? Well, I was uh, working after I finished my doctorate at Washington University in, in St. Louis. I was back in the United in Washington D.C. living with my son was about two years old. And my husband was working there, and I wanted to move into teaching, but I spent a couple of years paying bills and working at an ad agency. Then a friend called me and said, Kathy, I have the perfect place for you. You need to apply. And she told them the same. She was looking for a job in music as a music professor, but it found one at another location. So I met with the people at Berea and that was history. Yes. <laughs> well, Berea is a, a wonderful uh, town and, uh, and college with such a rich uh, history and so much to, uh, if you're not familiar with some of the background and some of the, the struggles that uh, the college went through uh, early on many, uh, many decades ago, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I'm always curious about people who move to Kentucky from another uh, region or another part of the United States and their reaction. So Washington, B.C., D.C., such a, a cosmopolitan city with so much hustle and bustle and things going on all the time to uh, uh, really more or less a very small, uh, some might even call it a country town in Kentucky. What was your first reaction? Well, Bill, it was like moving to the moon for me when I first came. <laughs> 
Yeah, because, you know, it, it's rich uh, where I grew up and people, all kinds of things. And I saw African-Americans all the time in many different walks of life. And then I came and other from other countries, just like you said, it's very cosmopolitan. And so when I come to Berea and I don't see anybody or very few people that even look like me and the uh, people that I did see who were white would stare at me like I was from Mars. And it's like, OK, uh, and uh, all I knew about Kentucky or uh, was just some, some ignorant stuff like the black, uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, or I didn't really know about the richness and beauty of Kentucky until I got here because I was looking for a job. But then I fell in love with people that I met and with the history. I found out I had Appalachian roots and I didn't even know that I found out that my own great uncle had died working in the coal mines and in Pennsylvania and his family moved to Washington D.C. area and in Virginia where my maternal grandmother grew up. That was all Appalachia. Didn't even know till I got here of all those wonderful connections. And of course, the students are phenomenal. And that's why instead of two years, I was there for 29. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the students and your first interaction uh, with them. Um, for those who don't know, again, I, you're much better at this than I am. Tell us about the students, how they get there, uh, the work-study program that uh, has always been a part of Berea, and uh, what it means to those kids. Many of them, even today, are first-generation college kids. Absolutely. It is unique. Uh, every student, uh, no student that attends Berea pays tuition, but they must have uh, very high grades on their, you know, their scores and their work as a leader in the community. So uh, Berea takes its students from primarily eight southern states in the, what they define as the Appalachian region. I'd say the majority of the students come from that. And so there is also focus to provide education for those students, some of the best and brightest who normally would not have any opportunity to do so. Uh, they all have to work at least 10 hours a week, many 20 hours a week. So by the end of four years, some students end up with no debt, graduate with no debt or very little. And they also will have at least four years work experience. So many, many of our employers love to get these students because of knowing that they've had this work experience. And it is so important that they even have uh, grades for their labor, just like they do for their academic work and it is high and demanding in its academic work. So it's it's requiring a lot of these students and they rise to the occasion time and time again and they are phenomenal. And I'm delighted to be a part of uh, that process or just being in the midst of it. We also have international students, I'd say about 7% and they have tuition paid for all four years. So it's very, very competitive. Did you find that the students were also musically inclined, bringing some of uh, their music uh, abilities and talents from, from Appalachia? Oh, absolutely. Now, the challenge is that many students did not have access to formal lessons, sometimes in instruments or piano. But on the other hand, students came with tremendous gifts Absolutely. And have gone on to excel in many ways. The ones that I've worked with in particular uh, have become doctorates and professors and performers in many different areas. And we're just really proud because in many schools, you cannot be a major unless you've had prior work in formal work. But at Berea, we say if you have the desire and the wherewithal to do the work, 
come. And they do it. We're going to talk uh, with uh, Dr. Kathy Bullock, who just retired from Berea College, is uh, an adjunct at the University of Kentucky, um, as well as doing many other things. Uh, she has uh, two uh, presentations for the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, Women's Suffrage and the uh, African-American Women's Voices, um, and the other is entitled uh, Singing in the Spirit. So I'm going to uh, lead Dr. Uh, Bullock uh, to talk about first the uh, second uh, part of what I just uh, mentioned, and then we'll uh, talk about the uh, women's suffrage uh, movement in just a moment. But singing in the spirit, and Dr. Bullock, this is the description that we have in our Speakers Bureau uh, bulletin. The African-American sacred music, tradition, spirituals, and gospel music are much more than pleasing songs to listen to. They are powerful representations of the triumphant spirit and faith that have defined African-American music and people. Dr. Bullock takes the audience on a musical journey from West Africa through the Middle Passage to the North American shores where the African-American culture was forged. Through songs, stories, and performances, this participatory program lets the audience experience the beauty, joy, and power of this music and culture. And I think uh, today, uh, Dr. Bullock, uh, since you're sitting in front of your piano, why don't you give us a little sample of uh, what you do with singing in the spirit? I am a poor pilgrim of sorrow. I'm lost in this wide world of old. No hope if I for tomorrow. I've started to make heaven my home. I've heard of a city called heaven. I've started to make it my home. I've started to make it my home. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Tell us a little bit about um, not only that song, but how you use that song and others in the talk that you do for our Speakers Bureau to, to tell the story that you want people to know. Well, I start off talking about the connections, like what in the world is African-American music? How do we define it? And I give some examples of our, our African heritage of songs and uh, ways of thinking from the African tradition, West African in particular, when we look at traditional ways there. And then I talk about the journey for people who were enslaved from Africa to the U.S. And then I sing these spirituals. And they were created here and could only have happened in the United States, but by people of African heritage who came to this country and had the shared experience of slavery, the influences of European, Western music. And out of that, this new culture emerged. And then we sing the songs. And it gives us a better insight of that aspect of our American culture and uh, where it came from. These songs, spirituals, are powerful, loved all over the world because they came while they came out of this institution of slavery, the words are authentic and powerful and speak to the human experience. Uh, Dr. Bullock, were, were the enslaved uh, 
from West Africa making the Middle Passage uh, to other countries, uh, Cuba, Jamaica, eventually um, many hundreds of thousands, millions to the United States. Were they singing those spiritual songs uh, on the ships that brought them to foreign lands, or were they uh, so uh, put upon by their masters and uh, sick with uh, all sorts of disease and really struggling just to stay alive? Did, did they have the energy, the strength to sing? You know, that's a wonderful question. I think the first time that's been asked to me, Bill, and I would say a little of both because singing in the this mindset, West African, I'm thinking about a worldview, it's not like optional. It's like breathing and I talk and I sing. Oh, oh. so doing moaning and coming, that, that would be as natural as breathing and talking and, and sharing that pain experience. So the term spiritual was, as far as I understand it, was not um, used until in the United States after several hundred years, this body, this literature of music and that, that term was given to it. But the idea of song and especially work songs, when people worked once they got to the U.S. because work songs were very common in Africa and the people here, the, the slave owners found out much more work got done when people sang, when the people sang. So that there were places and spaces where Africans were invited to use their music once they got here. Also, slaves were musicians in part here as well as in parts of Europe. So now on the ship itself, I don't know. There's talks about this this moaning and I and and beyond that, I don't know. It was pretty horrendous. It was pretty horrendous. And over millions died, but those who made it carried some of the stuff from Africa with them and included their music. What do you want your um, your audience uh, to take away from uh, this talk on singing in the spirit? What do you what are you trying to to uh, impart to them uh, in that presentation? I want to impart with them that there's beauty and power and richness in when we think of African American. Uh, music and African-American culture. The music is so much a part of American culture and just about every musical genre that emerged here in the United States either came out of or was influenced by African-American music. And oftentimes it was written out of the history books. And my desire is to write it back in and to embrace that, embrace our shared heritage and you know the journeys that we take because every culture has a story about ways in which they were mistreated and had to go through all kinds of struggles and trials. And this happens to be mine. Dr. Bullock is a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. We're going to talk to her about uh, I Got a Right to the Tree of Life, Women's Suffrage and uh, African-American Women's Voices. But first, we're going to hear from our friends at Spalding University. At Spalding University's School of Creative and Professional Writing, students develop mastery of the writing skills, highly prized in today's workplace, including arts and humanities organizations, government agencies, corporations, and small businesses. A professional writing student will explore opportunities writing for trade and consumer media, including reviews, profiles, interviews, and articles for sports, food, travel, health and science, and other publications. 
Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. All right, Dr. Bullock, the uh, second uh, uh, talk that you are available uh, for and uh, eligible to, uh, to go all across. Well, you know, we're Zooming now, so you can uh, go across the world if you want uh, with this. And, and we would uh, give you a shout out for that for sure. But uh, since um, we all know that we're celebrating uh, the special celebration for the 19th Amendment uh, to the United States Constitution, a uh, hundred years old. There are so many celebrations going on, and and uh, opportunities to to lift up uh, this uh, movement. But there are, uh, as in all things, um, sometimes you have to dig a little deep, scrape away the uh, the cover, uh, fold back the covers, maybe raise the one, and, and really find out uh, what happened to all women in uh, the 1800s and the, the, the early 1900s when this was uh, being worked on so hard. So your second, uh, as our description says in our Kentucky Humanities website, uh, through songs and stories, uh, this presentation will share the journey and the contribution of African-American women in the struggle for the right to vote in the United States. As part of the celebration of the centennial anniversary of the women's suffrage movement, this program will highlight stories and struggles of African-American women leaders from the late 1870s up to the Voting Rights Act uh, in 1965 and beyond. So my question to you, Dr. Bullock, uh, if, if people do not know, uh, and I'm, I just don't think that there is enough scholarship out there to inform everybody that uh, African-American women uh, had such an important part uh, uh, for the struggle uh, to uh, win the right to vote. And yet that's a story that you just don't uh, read about that the history books have forgotten. So tell me what role did black women uh, play in securing uh, the right to vote? You know, I am still learning as we speak about the many, many ways in which African-American women contributed and continue to contribute to suffrage, women's suffrage. And it's very exciting, the journey. When I realized this was the 100th year, I was saying, I was wondering what was going on in terms of song. And then I had some friends who were talking about doing a, a you know, celebration. And they told me, you know, this celebration talks about white women. And I'm saying, well, where were the black folk? I know we were there and we were involved. And not only were we involved with movers and uh, shakers, women. So as early as 1848, when they had what was called the Seneca Falls Convention uh, of, of white women and, and uh, men, there were black women who were leaders, who were speaking and uh, wanted to make a difference because these women were both abolitionists fighting for freedom of black people, as well as suffragists fighting for rights of women. At that time, women didn't have any rights, you know, and the family could, the husband could uh, have all this money. And then when he dies, the wife couldn't have any control over it, over the land. They're, the only people who voted were those white landowners. So here, these folks came together in a coalition. And people like Sojourner Truth, I think a name that many of us know, was a fierce abolitionist abolitionist, but this woman was um, sold like four times in the slavery and um, it was phenomenal, the harsh labor and things she had to do, but she fought so that uh, she was one of those that was a, a speaker and a charismatic uh, speaker and leader at this early time period. There were others like Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, um, 
some of these women were born free and some ended up going into Europe to really push for freedom for um, black folks, for abolitionist work, and we're working together with the suffrage movement. Um, Sarah Parker, Remond, they're people that I didn't even know about. Of course, Harriet Tubman is a name that we often hear, but it was not only for freeing the slaves, but it was also fighting so that everybody could have the right to vote. Um, Some of these had gone to, these women had uh, made, had done lawsuits and won. It was just fiery what they what they accomplished. And then during the turn of the century, right, well, right before that, during the Civil War, this coalition sort of fell apart. And after the Civil War was over, there was what we called Reconstruction, where Black folks just wanted to own their homes and, and have jobs and raise their families. And there was a big reaction against that by parts of the white community. So the Ku Klux Klan emerged. And so and all these other things to push against uh, black people getting the vote. So uh, women, white women particularly, were who had split in their uh, approach about what's the best way to get the vote for women, uh, came back together. But they excluded black women who had been working all along with them. So many of these women said, we're going to create our own organizations. And so the, the 19th Amendment did pass, allowing women the right to vote, but it really only went for white women because there were practices and laws that were put in place to keep black men and women from voting. Um, I mean, so we're talking the turn of the century after the Civil War and black women and black families, where are they going to live? What are they going to eat? What's the job to do? There was the, People were trying to live. And so Black women organized organizations like the National Association of Colored Women, and the idea was called Lifting as We Climb. And their whole concept continued to be about wanting to empower and enrich and just survive not, um, as a race, a people. And because of the, the homes, many of the communities that Black people had created were being, being um, firebombed and destroyed by whites. The men, uh, black men were being lynched all over the world. They, their families, there was, uh, was onslaught after the war to try. And so many of these people, like Ida Wells, who was one of the first to be journalists to write about what was going on with the lynching, um, and Mary Church Terrell, who began this group, National Association of Color Women. Um, and people like her, she spoke three languages. They invited her to speak in England, and she spoke her speech in German, French, and English. And so lifting as we climb, onward and upward we go. We knock at the bar of justice, asking an equal chance. So they were poets, they were physicians, they were um, spiritual people because the church was a strong area of the community from where these folks were. And these were some of the names we hear, but for every name we hear, there were so many more unsung heroes. Do you understand that um, some of the white uh, suffragettes uh, continued to push back against uh, black women and did not uh, uh, bring them into the fold to fight for the right to vote? Absolutely. Some were and some did not. They had different ideas of the strategies to get the vote for, for women. Uh, many of uh, So we had at one point two different organizations in 1869 one group said that we think, uh, because the 15th Amendment had passed, saying that we would give black men the right. But not women. But not women. 
And some of the women say, hold up. No, no, no. We want to have the focus on women getting them. And then the other one, the other organization said, well, let's go with that strategy because that will be the best way for us to get the vote for everybody. And so those two organizations, primarily white, there were black women there, but primarily white, they came together in 1890 and um, became the National Association of Women for Suffrage. Uh, And uh, Stanton was president, Elizabeth Stanton. And in this one, they excluded blacks because they really wanted to get more of the white Southern votes with them to gain the suffrage for women. So there's a story where uh, Susan B. Anthony said in 1895, Frederick Douglass, who had worked strongly with her for many years, please don't attend this conference in Atlanta because if you do, the white folks might be upset. So there was that kind of thing going on. Uh, as people were striving the best way they knew how to make a difference. And yes, so that's, it wasn't everybody, all folks, but it certainly was um, what was going on around the turn of the century. And remember, this is after the Civil War in the 19th, there was so much going on in our, in our lives here. And that was a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Bullock, uh, uh, do you have uh, part of your musical presentation in this uh, segment of your talk for Kentucky Humanities, uh, the the women's suffrage movement. Is there something you should, could could share uh, a little bit of? I can just share one of the spirituals that would have been sung by Black women um, and men uh, at that time period. Um, I also will be sharing some of the songs that women in general were singing. They would take songs like the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and they changed it to. Move on up and move on over. Move on up and move on over. The women are marching on. And those were, were being done by uh, white and black women, particularly uh, white men. And at the same time, there would be spirituals like, um, uh, don't you let nobody turn you around. Turn you around. Oh, turn you around. Don't you let nobody turn Keep your eye on the narrow way. So their spirituals like that would be sung in the black communities, but they would be taken also to use to encourage as folks were moving on in their journey. Well, it's a um, a marvelous story. And again, uh, just uh, trying to emphasize that uh, in this uh, celebration of the uh, 100th uh, anniversary, we must not forget uh, in any way the uh, role of uh, black women, uh, and I'm sure men too. Uh, I have read uh, that uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, the great uh, African-American uh, orator and writer, and um, was the only man who attended the Seneca Falls uh, meeting, which was always cited as the, the turning point of uh, of really the strength of the movement and how it was uh, going to build uh, in momentum from there. So he was uh, a great influence and I can understand, but at the same time uh, have um, harsh feelings against anyone who would want to keep him uh, out of any meeting, uh, especially the one in Atlanta that she referred to and the, the strength of the movement that he could have brought with him. Um, uh, and if, if he had been there, it might've even, happened a little sooner. We don't know, Bill. We don't know. There were so many things we can look back now and say, now, you know, that didn't make sense. or that was good. But at the time, people were voting with their passion, with their perspectives. And 
The more we understand those, the better we are able to deal with today because there's so many parallels between what's happening now, uh, 2020, and then 1920, even with the virus. The idea of the Spanish flu that was some people couldn't vote because of the flu back then. And we have this pandemic now and the roles and the challenges for Black people um, and for, with, with uh, what we call Black Lives Matter, with women wanting to just have their families have, have safety. Really, and there's so much we can learn from that. And I'm still learning daily. Well, we all are. And that's the, the whole purpose of our Speakers Bureau and the, the wonderful uh, members that we have that take these stories uh, across the state of Kentucky. And as I said, maybe the world, too. Uh, we are doing a series of uh, interviews on the women's suffrage uh, celebration, some from our Speakers Bureau, some not. But they will all be coming up in the next few weeks. And Dr. Bullock, once again, uh, thank you so much for sharing your your wonderful talent, uh, your uh, music accomplishments, uh, as well as uh, the work and the scholarship you've done on putting together these talks for us. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing you in person, live, uh, at one of these uh, events. Uh, as soon as we can all do that, we will uh, look forward to, to welcoming you and, uh, and thanking you in person at that time. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for um, this invitation to do the interview, to talk about stuff I love to do (laughs) and engaging with uh, your listeners. Thank you, Dr. Bullock. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.